Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, survivalists. Welcome to the Crux True Survival Stories, and you are listening to part one of self-amputation for survival. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh. I'm here with co-host Julie Henningsen. How are you doing, Julie? I'm great. That sounds like a grim title. You've got my interest, Casey. I know it's kind of grim. Today, we're taking a little bit of a change of pace. We're switching up our format. We're going to delve into these harrowing experiences of individuals who faced this unimaginable circumstance that forced them to make ultimate sacrifice for their own survival. I have to say, when I was thinking about doing this topic, I told a couple people and they were like, oh, gross. I'm not interested. Specifically, my brother. Well, he was one of them. Well, I bet he listens, though. That's one of those things that it's like a train wreck. You can't not listen. Yeah, he's not going to. He can't even handle the thought of healing bone like that made him turn green. So I don't think he'll be able to handle this one, Julie. (laughs) Okay, well, there you have it. It's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. The other thing that I will say is if for any reason you feel that way when you think of anything medical, don't go into medicine. Because I kind of wonder sometimes if people go into medicine and then they realize that they are squeamish. I've seen that happen in the OR. Unsuspecting medical students who don't realize that they get squeamish just sort of passing out, hitting the deck in the middle of surgery. It's not a fun way to learn that you're not cut out for the profession you're, you're already enmeshed in. That's crazy. Right. Especially considering how much money you probably already put into getting to that point. But you would think like, okay, you at least had to take anatomy and physiology, right? You have to do the cadaver stuff. I mean, at that point, you would think if you were squeamish, you wouldn't even be able to handle the thought of that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Fortunately, there's plenty of opportunity in the field of medicine that doesn't require blood and guts. Psychiatry, for example. Exactly. Mental health. (laughs) We had in my cadaver lab in college, there was somebody that passed out on the concrete floor. That was a little hardcore, like completely out of the blue. We were just having a conversation, not even touching anything. And this person went down cold. Mm, yeah, it's dangerous, too. They can end up with a head injury for sure. On that hard <laughs> right. cadaver lab floor. Uh, can you remember the smell of that place? Okay, I'm going to stop oh, talking yeah. about gross stuff. But <laughs> formaldehyde. <laughs> Well, no, this uh, is actually a good little disclaimer. Like if you can't make, if you've not made it comfortably this far in the podcast, it might be a good time to skip to next week's. Right. So you're going to join us as we explore the grouping accounts of individuals who confronted with imminent peril, resorted to the unthinkable act of self-amputation. From remote wilderness expeditions gone awry to unforeseen accidents in the most unlikely places, Each story unfolds with raw emotion and stark realism. I will try to keep this low key to avoid giving too many people the willies. But again, if you're going to be squimish, you might want to skip on to the next episode. 
So Julie, what do you think? If it was a matter of life and death, would you perform self-amputation? Absolutely. No question. No question. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I could do it. I just feel like that maybe is one of the gifts of working in the medical field is, you know, you might just be like a tiny, tiny bit more comfortable with something like that than if you didn't work in the medical field and you had no background knowledge on, you know, how to even approach something like that. Yeah, I agree with you there. But I also think that when you're in a situation like that, when it gets dire enough, you're almost probably having an out-of-body experience. You know, you're thinking about it, but it almost doesn't seem like it's your own limb. Yeah, that makes sense. And you'd probably, at least I, would probably be dreading it so much that I would wait and wait and wait till the last possible moment. Then, you know, my cognitive ability and my energy level would be sunk. And yeah, I wouldn't be performing at my peak surgical capabilities by then. (laughs) Pure self-surgery peak capabilities. Yeah, my (laughs) self-surgery peak capabilities would be diminished in a major way by the time I got the, the nerve to do something like that. Although you might find that you're wrong about that because some of these situations don't really give any time to give any consideration. It's like you arrive immediately at the point at which it's now or never, right at the point when you need to amputate. Okay. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you guys to think about logistically what it actually takes to remove a limb. I am with you if you don't want to picture this yourself, uh, you know, picturing yourself in this situation. I totally understand. Simpson Lambert is an upper limb surgeon at the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital in Stanmore, which is in London. And in an article for The Guardian, he gave his two cents about this. After all of the interest that was drummed up in the case of Aaron Ralston, he stated that the simplest way to do it would be to go across the joint. Then you don't have to cut through the bone. Next, you need to work out how to tackle the arteries. Start chopping at the elbow and you have only one artery to cut through. But this splits at the elbow into two that run down the forearm. Whether you cut through one big artery or two smaller ones makes little difference. If your tourniquet is not tight enough, you are in trouble. Next for the chop are the nerves. There are four major nerves in the forearm and they can be tricky to cut properly. Done well, the severed nerves retract back into the muscle. It's vital to get this right. Otherwise, you get an exquisitely painful lump on the nerve called a neuroma. And you don't want one of those near your stump. Lambert said that it's not too difficult in an operating room. An amputation usually would take about 45 minutes to do properly with the right tools. But I got to say, Julie, I just love the fact that he uses the word chop when he's describing this because it's such a subtle word to describe it, right? Right. Yeah, that's not what you might expect, like excise or something a little bit more medical terminology. I like that, though. Cut to the chase, just chop. He doesn't care if we're sensitive about it at all. He just is a surgeon. He's done his fair share of it, and he probably doesn't think anything about removing limbs. Right, yeah. But in regard to mindset, Lambert said that it, quote, takes a special sort of person. In regard to Aaron Ralston, Lambert said that he was so clear thinking and so determined to live that he was willing to do what speaks volumes for his character. The question, am I going to do it myself? would tax even the most outrageously brave man. I like that he says man. There's nothing about, yeah. you know, human, individual. Or what about you know? an outrageously brave woman? I guess she might yeah. maybe be quicker to do it. <laughs> oh. 
Maybe he doesn't think that those people exist in the world. I'm not sure. I hope not. <laughs> so let's get into this. No better place to start than the one that everybody already knows about, which is Aaron Ralston. And Tessa and I covered this in one of our first episodes of the podcast. If you're interested in listening to the whole thing, all of the details, it's episode number three. I'm going to do a little bit of a recap. It's easy to forget details. So I'm not going into all of the crazy details of the story, but enough so you understand how he got to the point of knowing that this was his only option. At the age of 27, which was 2003, Ralston was hiking in Utah's Blue John Canyon, and he was traveling alone. Blue John Canyon is in eastern Wayne County, Utah, which is just south of Horseshoe Canyon unit of Canyonlands National Park. As he was descending the lower stretches of a slot canyon, which, as a reminder, is a long, narrow channel of steep rock, he was jamming to his favorite band, Fish. Probably in a, you know, super euphoric, happy mood, he was on his way out. And a suspended boulder became dislodged as he climbed down from it. The rock fell, it smashed his left hand, and then it landed on his right hand, pinning him to the canyon wall. The rock that pinned him was, guess how heavy this thing was, Julie? Two, uh, two tons. It was 800 pounds. Mm, okay. But, I mean, 800 pounds is a lot later oh, at landing. yeah. Might as well yeah. have been two tons. Yeah, it doesn't matter at that point. Right, exactly. And when I was looking over the episode with Tessa, there was some mention of his hand. He could see his hand, apparently. I don't know. It's really hard to picture this. I need to watch the documentary, I think, to just really visualize where the rock was positioned. Yeah, they made a movie about this story, right? 127 yeah, twenty-seven or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So this is what he said about this incident. He said, quote, I go from being out on a lark in a beautiful place and just being so happy and carefree to like, oh, shit, I fell a few feet in slow motion. I look up and the boulder is coming and I push my hands up and I try to push myself away and it collides and crushes my right hand. And unfortunately, at the time, he didn't have a cell phone, but he wouldn't have had reception out there anyway. And this is before in reaches and other satellite modes of communication. So. The most unfortunate thing in this incident is he hadn't given any indication to anyone about where he was going. He spent a little while trying to figure out, hey, could I get this rock off of me? And maybe for the first few days, he'd been ch chipping at the rock with his knife. His knife was really pretty blunt. In the beginning, he had a small amount of water in his camelback and a small amount of food. There's mention of two burritos and a little bit of chocolate, which he rationed as slowly as he could over this period of time. But by about day three, he ran out of water and food. He had a problem-solving moment around that time, you know, closer to day five, where he was thinking that he wouldn't kill himself. And so his options were basically dive dehydration, die of suicide or self-amputation. And this was a little bit before he made the definitive decision to remove his arm. And then right before he amputated his arm, he carved his name, date of birth, and presumed date of death in the sandstone. And he made a video mm. to say goodbye to friends and family. So I'm, I think that he was a little bit on the cusp, but which I feel like anyone would be considering the gravity yeah. of that situation. You know what I mean? Like, it takes a lot of guts to get to that point, I think. Oh, yeah. And just thinking about even with his best effort, all the things that could possibly go wrong that 
would mean the end. Right. During that night, the fifth night, he had hallucinations of himself playing with a future child. And in his hallucination, he was missing a portion of his right arm, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. I'm curious if he has a child. We'll have to look into that if you didn't already. I think he has a couple of children, but that feels like divine intervention a little bit. Yep, absolutely. Upon awakening on the sixth day, after a prolonged period of time since the boulder had fallen on his arm, he had reduction of blood supply to the limb, and he noticed that the tissue that was compressed by the rock was decomposing, right? So back to Lambert in my mentioning earlier, the surgeon, I thought this was interesting. He felt that one hour after the boulder of 800 pounds would land on your arm, that your nerves and your muscle tissue would already be dead due to lack of oxygen to that and blood flow to that tissue. It's pretty, pretty fast. Yeah, that seems fast. I feel like you could put a tourniquet on for well over an hour and you wouldn't have irreversible tissue damage, but maybe it's different with a crushing mechanism like that. Yeah, and just the amount of compression on the arm at that point, I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. I guess we'll never really know, but he mentioned something about the amputation is already half completed. When the, at the point at which an 800 boulder falls on your forearm. Yeah, that makes sense. So getting through the skin would not be super difficult, but the multi-tool he had was pretty blunt. And he realized he wasn't going to be able to cut through the bone with this knife. It was pretty much completely futile. He all of a sudden had this epiphany that he could leverage the rocks to break his bones in his forearm to free himself. So he was able to use the leverage to break one bone at a time. So first he broke his radius and then the ulna, which I think, I feel like this would be the absolute worst part of this whole process, personally. Can you imagine that part? Yeah, it makes me wonder how numb he was, how numb things were by that point, like how much nerve damage might be working in his favor to where it maybe isn't as painful as it would be if you were just doing that day one, say. Right. He used his camelback hose and he wrapped it around his arm as a tourniquet, which I'm trying to even picture how you do this. You know, he had a backpack. He has to get the hose out of the backpack. Then he's got to tie it around his arm with one hand tight enough that it's going to reduce blood flow like that in and of itself is a feat. Yeah, he's probably holding it in his teeth and one, on one side. Right. I mean, I don't know how else you would do that. So then he uses his multi-tool to complete the job. It Again, the blade is only two inches long. He had to use pliers to get through the tendons, and he severed his arteries last, which was pretty smart. In an episode of NPR's Redux titled A Climber's Survival Tale, Aaron summed up his experience with this quote. I know you think the word dreadful to describe that experience of the amputation, and I think that's the way people see it and have a hard time understanding that for me, six days of considering myself a dead man Even to the extent that I'd make my farewell message and my last will and testament on the videotape, my family and my friends that I've written RIP over my name etched into the wall on the left side of the canyon. The moment when I figure out how I can get free, it was the best idea and the most beautiful experience I will ever have in my life. And it was all euphoria and not a bit of horror. I was having my life back after being dead. That's amazing. Yeah, I did. I I do kind of get that, though, if he hadn't been thinking about that and deliberating about it, and if it just sort of came to him as a solution, 
Yeah, because I feel like at that point he knew it was going to work. There was something in him that knew this is possible. I'm capable of yeah. this, right? Because if he didn't have that thought, I think he wouldn't have felt so euphoric about it. He realized there was a way out. Right. He sounded like he had made up his mind and was determined, which is probably essential for this to be successful. Right. So he was able to repel 65 feet down the sheer wall, and he was able to hike out of the canyon. He had eight miles to go in total. But luckily, after six miles, which is almost the whole way there, he was met by a family who was vacationing from the Netherlands, and they alerted authorities. So he was rescued four hours after he severed his arm, which is unbelievable. And at the point of rescue, Ralston had lost 25% of his blood volume and 40 pounds of body weight. Oh, wow. In five and a half days. That's significant. Yeah. He figured he would have bled to death if he had amputated earlier because maybe he wouldn't have been found. And if he had not amputated, he would have been found a dead man, of course. So this is the part I thought was really fascinating. Park authorities were able to remove the boulder from his severed arm. But interestingly, because of the weight and position of the boulder, it took 13 men, a winch, and a hydraulic jack to move it. That just goes to prove that there was no way he was going to get it out of there with his rope and pulley system that he was hoping would work. Right. I think that that is fascinating. And I don't know if you remember this, Julie, but he had the remains of his arm cremated and laid to rest at the site of the incident. No, I did not know that. He felt that that's where they belonged. Also, what I thought was interesting is that they would put this much effort into removing this arm. And I wonder what yeah, maybe, they were thinking. I wonder if maybe it was like a, a popular trail and they thought, you know, for public safety, maybe it, maybe that was the motivation. Right. It was more about removing the, the rock than it was retrieving the arm. I don't know. And I wonder what they thought he was going to do with the arm once they were, gave it back to him. Duct tape it back on. <laughs> I don't know. It's just really interesting. But, you know, I've heard stories about people having like gallbladder surgery and, or, I don't know, different surgeries and wanting to keep parts of their body that have been removed, which I think is very mm -hmm. strange. Lipomas. Yeah. <laughs> Did anyone ask you to, if they could keep the lipoma that you removed? Well, I didn't remove lipomas, um, but my colleagues did. And yes. Are you serious? Actually, the comedian David Sedaris, I don't know if you know any of his stories, but he has a super funny story about getting a lipoma removed and asking <laughs> to keep it. It's a thing. That is so weird. I mean, I could see that an arm would be way more symbolic than a lipoma, but I, everybody right. is different. What can I say? <laughs> right. All right. Now we're moving on to the second story. This one's a little more startling because it's something that occurred in someone's home, which is unthinkable. It's an unthinkable location to consider self-amputation for survival. Julie, I got to say this makes my hair stand up on the back of my neck a little bit. Let's hear it. Okay. On June 15, 2010, Jonathan Metz was a normal suburban male who's living in Connecticut with his dog, a beagle named Portia. He was home alone in the basement working on his furnace. He was replacing the boiler fins from behind the furnace, and he dropped a tool on the floor. He leaned over to pick it up. In a horrific moment of no return, his left arm becomes stuck between the heating cores inside the boiler. What follows is two and a half days of being trapped 
in his own home by his own accidental doing. So Can his imagine? arm is, no, I'm trying to picture this. His arm, he leaned forward. His arm is stuck in the boiler or between. Yeah. So there's, there's some heating cores inside the boiler and a tool fell down to the floor and he reached his arm through these coils to pick it up. And then he wasn't able to reach his arm back out. So they must have been pretty tight. Was um, it hot? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I don't know what the temperature of these heating cores were. I don't think that it was extremely hot, but I don't know that for sure. Um, but one thing that I was thinking about is that, you know, heat increases blood flow, right? So your arm is going to naturally swell within a period of time. And mm -hmm. that's going to make it really hard. You know what I would have done in this instance? I would have just started spitting on my arm as much as I could to see if I could get it to be slippery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Slip it but, out with some wet saliva. Right. I don't know. I mean, that would be my first instinct or something. Or if I was a guy, I might pee on it. Yeah. It wouldn't really work as a woman. <laughs> you can well, get you into the right to be, position to do you that. You have to be a little more creative. It depends on like what you could reach with your good arm. Yeah, in this situation, there's not a whole lot of space, probably, because he's behind the furnace. He's probably wedged, like, awkwardly in there. The whole, just yeah. holding that body position for two-plus days sounds brutal. Oh, terrible. He began yelling and screaming for about 12 hours. He had no idea when he was going to be rescued, and he, again, lives alone with his dog. He began to feel desperation when he started smelling decay from his arm. And he knew he was going to, at that point, need to use extreme measures to survive. So this is about 18 hours of being trapped. That's when he decided this is, it's time. And miraculously, he had some power tool blades either in his pocket or nearby enough that he could reach them. So he used his T-shirt as a tourniquet and then he started cutting. He made it way, his way through his bicep. And it's hard to picture the way his arm was stuck in this position because there was talk about cutting his bicep, his elbow, and also something about cutting his shoulder. So I don't know at what point, like really where he was stuck. Halfway through, he had to stop because of pain, but also his tourniquet wasn't working very well and he started losing a lot of blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not good. Which I think in all of these instances, that's really the thing that is the most limiting factor is when are you going to start bleeding how fast is it going to be going? And can you stop it? Right. Because your time really starts ticking at the point at which you cut an artery, you know, like, yeah, yeah. You got to get that tourniquet dialed in. Yeah. With one arm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Easier said than done. Right. So at that point, when he wasn't able to remove his whole limb, he figured it was over and he started giving up. But then he later had a second wind. He started worrying about little Portia upstairs. And he was thinking about how she was getting dehydrated. And he was also thinking about his parents and his friends. And he also had a fiance, which I thought was interesting because I would find that a little bit rare that there was no communication between the two of them for over two days. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, maybe she was out of town or long distance or something. Yeah, maybe. That's what I was kind of thinking. He was resourceful. He used his sandal to get some dirty water from the boiler. There was a little release valve and he was able to get a little bit of water out of it. And then once he hydrated a bit, he felt a renewed sense of hope. In this instance, it was a really good thing that Metz did not work from home because his coworkers began wondering where he was. This is the thing I think was interesting. They were really worried when he didn't show up for the company softball game on Tuesday. That he didn't <laughs> show up for work for two days. That's just par for the course. But the softball game, that's where we drive. Right. 
Exactly. They were like, he would never miss softball. I really would hope that people would try to find me before that long of a period of time had elapsed. I guess you that know? is one of the disadvantages of working from miss. You're not going to be missed as quickly. Especially if you live alone. Yeah. Some of his coworkers left the game and decided to go see if they could find him. They started becoming worried, of course. And when they got to his house, they see his car in the driveway. They see all the lights on. The dog is just barking like crazy. So they know something's up. They go into the house. They start looking around. They find him in the basement and they call the police. In order to get Mets out, firefighters had to rip apart the furnace with heavy tools, including a spreader, which is usually used to remove doors off of cars. So that gives mm -hmm. you an idea of how significant this was. In one of the sources that I read, it indicated that the fire chief, Matt Stewart, had to complete the amputation in order to get him out. Mm. So he didn't get the whole limb severed before his coworkers mm -mm. showed up. No, and I kind of wonder if he would have eventually gotten to that point because he had feeling in whatever area he was trying to remove, and that's why he stopped. So potentially, if it had been a little bit longer, maybe he would have been able to do it. I don't know. But interestingly, a media relations manager for the hospital stated that his attempt to amputate actually saved his life because it reduced the risk of sepsis because he removed a bunch of necrotic tissue from his arm when he did that. Oh, nice. Good work. Luckily, yeah. surgeons were able to clean up the initial job, and it took two and a half hours in the operating room. Yeah, it sounds like it was kind of a mess. Yeah, and also I was trying to picture this because it talked about his forearm, his bicep, and his shoulder. Can you imagine the amount of blood flow coming, you know, into your arm from your shoulder? Right, yeah, that's some major artery in that neighborhood. When I was reading this story and doing research, I was thinking, thank goodness for the coworkers. Without the coworkers, he for sure would have died, or there's a really good I chance know. that he would have died. Yes, that is, I was thinking the same thing. Good coworkers are the best. Totally. Yes. My coworkers would probably hold my hair back for me if I was puking. I bet you. Yeah. There's just, that's one of life's little underrated pleasures is working with good people. Absolutely. All right. So now to story number three. This is Mr. John Hutt. He was a Colorado logger. He was 61 at the time of this story. Logging in general is a little bit more dangerous than working on furnaces. As a general rule, I would say. Logging is known to be one of the most hazardous industries with a significant number of accidents occurring annually. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and other sources, logging consistently ranks among the most dangerous occupations in the U.S. But this story takes place on August 19, 2011. John drove his logging truck to a remote area of western Colorado. At this point, he was working for himself. He was going to get a pile of aspen trees that had fallen to use for firewood in the winter. And as he's working, there was a lurching and the trailer became detached and it slid off and landed on his foot. Mm. He said, the trailer started to slide. It pinned my right foot in there. And when I tried to move it, the pain got worse. And as I mentioned a little bit ago, Hutt was in this remote location without cell service. He was stuck there for about 30 minutes and he made the decision he had to remove his toes. I mean, it, this was one of those instances where he really, he knew that he had to do this. There must not have been any traffic in the location that he was, you know, where he was. 
And then maybe he was thinking, even in the event that somebody did come, they're going to have to figure out how to get this trailer off of his foot. Sounds like it's a little more black and white. He probably just knew that uh, nobody was coming based on the location. No point in yelling for help or waiting it out. It's almost exactly. Yeah. And thankfully, he was resourceful enough to have a knife in his pocket because, I mean, gosh, what else would he be able in that situation? He would have just probably died there. But he had a three inch pocket knife and he started amputating his toes. He started off by cutting off his boot. And as soon as he cut through his boot, he realized how bad the situation was. Despite the intense pain, he knew that he had to work quickly before he just totally lost his nerve to do it. He was also concerned that he might go into shock or drop the knife or something, and then he would really be in trouble. So he took breaks and did some deep breathing when it got to be too much, but finally was able to finish what he started, which was to remove all five toes, every single one of them. Hmm. That seems a little easier, especially if he had a sharp knife. I mean, then like an arm. Yes, right. He said that the smaller toes were easy, but by the time he got to the big toes, it was really difficult to get through the tendons Mm, because his blade was also getting dull at that point. But it sounds like he probably went through the joint so he didn't have to remove bone. Maybe the learning there is uh, if you're ever in this situation, start with the big toe. Right. Start with the big toe. Uh, What a horrible thought. He was able to use his shirt as a tourniquet to slow the bleeding, and he drove his semi-tractor trailer down a mountain pass. And you got to remember, this was his right foot. That's the gas pedal foot. Oh, Can yeah. you even imagine that? Like, wow. Oh, yeah. So he basically drove down the mountain pass until he got into cell phone range. And then shortly thereafter, an ambulance took him to the hospital, and he spent four days in the hospital before he went home. Mm-hmm. He got a lot of media attention, and he wasn't really into it. Yeah, he probably was an ice, or he probably lived a quiet, um, maybe isolated life, logging in the woods and minding his own business. Probably didn't appreciate the limelight. Yeah, that's what I would picture too. I think a lot of those people that go into logging really like the solitude of that type of occupation. Yeah. So now we're to number four, the last story I'm going to tell you guys today. On September 30th, 2009, an 18-year-old Indonesian construction worker named Ramlan was trapped in the rubble of a building that collapsed during an earthquake in Pindang. The earthquake occurred at 516 local time, and the magnitude was 7.6. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. He'd been working in this building on the seventh floor. He was working as a construction worker. What ended up happening is that his legs were crushed beneath a concrete girder. Based upon the way that I was reading this story, it sounded like one of his legs was trapped. And in this instance, immediately he decided he had to remove his leg. He did not take any time to decide. It was basically like, this has to happen right now. It's almost like what happened to our last gentleman, but this was even more dire. And just picture you're in a building with stories above you that could still collapse on top of you, even after the Mm -hmm. initial quake. Right. And you're also in a huge earthquake um, where any kind of resource of somebody that's going to come for help, it's hours, if not days away. Right. And basically everybody that was working with him in the building, they all were get, trying to get out at the point at which this giant piece of concrete fell on him and nobody stayed to help. He was able to find a hoe 
and he was using the blade to try to remove his leg, but it was too blunt. Thankfully, he had his cell phone with him and he was able to call his coworker on his undamaged phone and he had service. So his friend Amon, who had already exited the building, turned around to help and he found a trowel, but they couldn't get it. They couldn't get through the bone. So later they were able to find a saw and the two were able to get through the bone. Amon tied a shirt around Ramlin's leg at that point and carried him all the way to the hospital. Mm, that's another good coworker. Right? That might be the theme of this episode. Yes. Amon and Ramlin must have had a pretty close relationship because Amon called Ramlin his little brother and they lived in close proximity. He said, quote, I just thought I have to save my friend and I raced back up to where he was. I did not think of the danger, just the welfare of my friend. Charities delivered aid to Padang after the earthquake, and a spokesperson from a UK-based charity group stated that, quote, Ramlan's actions were extraordinary, and the courage and determination he showed was typical of many of the survivors whom we were working. In the aftermath of this earthquake, Julie, hundreds to thousands of people were buried under rubble. 704 mm. people were initially confirmed dead. 343 people were missing and an estimated 1,500 people injured, 600 of those having severe injuries. Wow, that's incredible. So many people. I can't imagine being in that position where you just know this is the only way I'm going to make it. Yeah. I do think, though, that having that knowledge that, you know, you, that's your only option is somewhat of a gift. Right. Instead of having to really think through the pros and cons and make sure, oh, am I making the right choice here? Am I going to regret this later? Right. I mean, if you just think of life in general, decisions where you have to deliberate are so much more painful than when you just know the answer. Yeah. It takes a lot of mental energy to be in that in-between zone, especially when it comes to something that's so dire where you really need to decide. So yeah. in conclusion, these stories of individuals resorting to self-amputation for survival just underscore the extraordinary lengths that people will go through when they're facing extremely dire circumstances. And obviously this requires a lot of mental fortitude, but I think it also just showcases the lengths that people will go through when it comes to a life or death situation. You know, we're going to do whatever we have to do when it comes down to it to survive. And I think that that's why people are still on the planet, right? I mean, it's just, you have to do whatever it takes. Yeah, that's our instincts, our programming. Survival is number one. Yeah, I mean, not to say that it's not ever difficult because obviously this is one of those extreme situations, but I don't know. It's pretty crazy to think about. Clearly, it's obviously important to appreciate the fact that drastic measures like this should only be considered as a last resort. And the best situation if you're being amputated is to have a surgeon do it, of course, but you know, sometimes you don't get that option. Casey, have you ever been in a situation where you had got like a body part stuck or something was happening where you had this momentary feeling of, oh my gosh, I can't get out of this? Um, I'm not really sure. But when I was reading through all these stories, especially the one about the furnace, I was thinking about how many times I've stuck my arms into small spaces to pick something up that fell. And <laughs> I mean, granted, they're not usually the kind of scenarios where you're going to get stuck and no one's going to find you. But I'm going to consider it more in the future, I guess. I'll put it that way. What about you? No, I can't think of any um, where I've been stuck, but it does make me think of finger injuries where 
I realize I'm not going to be able to get a ring because of swelling. That's happened to me before. But fortunately, there's some tricks to avoid having to cut the ring, especially if you've worked in urgent care, you've probably employed dental floss or other techniques to slide the those stuff. Off. Yeah. Um, man, I have to say, I've had to remove some rings that were extremely stressful where you have to like numb up a whole finger and those ring cutters, they get dull. Oh my gosh. I had, I've had a couple of really stressful situations with, with ring cutters. It's not yeah. fun at all. The only thing that I was thinking about was it's just a good reminder of how fast things can happen when you're not expecting it. I've probably told you this before, but there was a winter a few years ago. Brady was three, my youngest, and he locked the door into the garage and I didn't know it. And then he went out into the garage and I followed him and I closed the door behind me and locked us out of the house. And, you know, my keys, my phone, our jackets our shoes, basically everything that we would have needed were all locked inside the house. And it's the middle of winter and I live kind of in no man's land. There's, I don't have a neighbor. I don't have a phone. There's nothing that's real close to where I am. So I was thinking I'm going to have to walk to the road and hitchhike or something. And thankfully, I'm so grateful to myself that I had a spare key in my car. And so I was able to drive somewhere where I could get another key to my parents' house. So, but if I hadn't had that key in there, it would have been, I mean, it wouldn't have been a life or death situation, but it's just one of those things where you don't recognize always how fast something can happen, what, you know, really can inconvenience you or maybe yeah. put you in a survival situation. Right. The implications of something that seems pretty simple at first. What about, have you Especially, had anything like that ever happen? Let me think about that. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. I feel like I can relate to that, but nothing mm-hmm. specific comes to mind. For me, I, like always just worrying that my car is going to break down when I, you know, having the thought when I'm on some isolated mountain pass, nobody, no resources for miles and just worrying that my car is going to break down. That's something that's been in the back of my mind more than once, which just goes to tell you that I tend to drive older, unreliable vehicles, <laughs> which is, you know, maybe something that. I could change. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I did this year. I was like, no more, no more risking getting stuck somewhere in the middle of nowhere with the car that doesn't work. Especially after I had that incident near Bozeman that yeah, was like yeah. the last straw for me. Yeah. Julie, are you going to have some nightmares now? Yeah. I think it's probably not as straightforward as I pictured at the beginning of the episode. Right. Like the logistics of actually doing it to yourself. Yeah. The psychology, the logistics, the tools, you know, so many variables. So many variables. It it is going to give me nightmares. Yeah. The most limiting factor, too, is do you have a tool available at all? Obviously, if you don't have a tool, you're going to nod off. Just (laughs) Oh, that's the creepiest way to envision doing it. That's going to give me nightmares. (laughs) And now, as we come to the end of today's episode, we'd like to extend our heartfelt gratitude to all of our listeners who have joined us on this journey through Tales of True Survival. Your support means the world to us. Remember, you can stay connected with us on Instagram at The Crux Podcast or reach out to us via email at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. 
We truly value your feedback and suggestions, so please do not hesitate to let us know what topics you'd like to hear more about or if there's any other ways that we can improve your listening experience. As we wrap up, we'd encourage you to embrace the spirit of adventure and keep exploring, stay curious, and stay safe out there. Have a fantastic week, and until next time, keep on adventuring. And that's the end. So you guys, we will keep you posted when part two of Amputations for Survival is going to come in the next few weeks. All right. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week and that's a wrap.